The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Jesus answered, and he said to him, If anyone may love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and will make a dwelling place with him. The one not loving me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's, the one living, sent me. I've spoken these things to you while remaining with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that one will teach you all things and will remind you all things that I said to you. I leave peace with you. I give to you my peace. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Your heart must not be troubled and it must not be afraid. John 14, beginning with verse 23. Or again, this passage that I've been sharing with you a great deal. I am the vine, the true one. My father's the fine dresser. And every branch in me not bearing fruit, he cuts it off. And every branch bearing fruit, he always prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean by the word that I've spoken to you. You must remain in union with me. You must remain in union. That's a, in the Greek, in the locative, which means positional. He's saying, 
your position has to be in union with me. You have to be in me. Just as the branch is not able to bear fruit from itself, if it may not remain in the vine, so neither can you. If you may not remain in union with me, I'm the vine, you're the branch. The one remaining in union with me and I with him, this one bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone may not remain in union with me, he was thrown out as the branch and was dried up. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you may remain in union with me and my ramas or Holy Spirit words may remain in you, you will ask whatever you may desire and it will happen for you. By this my Father was glorified that you may bear much fruit and you will prove to be my disciples. Now he also spoke about these matters in John 16. I tell you the truth. It's better for you that I may go away. For if I may not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I may go, I will send him to you. And that one, after having coming, will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go away to my Father, and you see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you're not able to bear them. But when the one may come, the Spirit of the truth, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak from himself, but he will speak whatever he may hear, and he will declare the coming things to you. Then we go to John, the 17th chapter. I'll begin reading with verse 20. And I'm not asking concerning these only, but also concerning the ones believing in me through their word that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in union with me and I with you, that they may also be one in union with us. <coughs> Pardon me. That the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, the world will believe that Jesus is who he claims to be if they see us in union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, I in union with them, you in union with me, that they may be perfect and perfected into one, that the world may know that you sent me and you love them just as you love me. I could read many more scriptures, but let me tell you what I'm getting at. This is a stunning truth. Jesus came into the world as the greatest single event in the history of this earth. Few of you would dispute that with me. 
He is number one. There is no second. He has influenced more people, more nations, than any other single person in the history of the world. He worked more miracles, more signs and wonders. He died spectacularly on that cross, not as a martyr, not as a victim, but as a sacrifice unto God, the atoning sacrifice, the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. It was God's plan. He was resurrected in glory. But then he said, another event is going to take place in time and space and history. And I want to suggest to you that it was the second most important thing that has ever happened on the earth. We call it Pentecost. Fifty days after the great feast, it was the celebration of the coming of the law on Mount Sinai. And on that day, the Lord sent his promised Holy Spirit. Now, this is where things begin to really unwind. We find in Romans, the sixth chapter, what John was talking about, repent, turn from your sin, be baptized in water. In the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, all of that is spelled out in great detail. Much more detail than John the Baptist gave us. Let me read some of this. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the entryway into the Christian way, the early church was called the people of the way, the people of the path. They were not called Christians until Antioch. The people of the way is a much better term than the word Christian. The word Christian means Christ follower. People of the way means there's a journey. That's why this broadcast is called Pilgrim's Progress, because it's not a vertical line that we come to. We say a sinner's prayer, and we say we believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, or just Savior, as one church in Washington does. They don't want you to talk about Lord yet. They want you to only speak about Jesus as Savior. And then somehow, you cross that vertical line, and you're now saved. You've got your ticket punched. You're on your way to heaven, and you... According to their teaching, you can't lose that salvation. It's called once saved, always saved. Of course, it's not taught in the scriptures. A few passages of scripture can be twisted to make them say that, but you can twist scripture every which way, taking it out of context and not putting it with other scriptures, not rightly dividing the word of truth teaching a false doctrine, 
and once saved, always saved, eternal security is a false doctrine. It's a journey. It's not a vertical line, it's a horizontal line. And we make the journey, and we are not saved, but we are saved. We're still on probation until we reach the end. That's the preponderance of the teaching of Scripture. Now, in the sixth chapter, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So there is a death that we must enter into where the old man must die, where we give up the way of the flesh and we begin to walk in the way of the spirit. In other words, we are in Jesus positionally, in reality. There is no such thing in Scripture as imputed righteousness. It is all imparted righteousness. It's for real. Now, verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So when we enter into Jesus, we have died to sin. We no longer walk in it. Verse 11, in the same way, count or consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. In other words, don't offer your feet to take you places that are of this world, of the flesh, of the devil. Don't offer your hands. Don't offer your body to works of darkness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And grace, according to the book of Titus, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to somebody to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to that one you obey? whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin, and have become slaves to righteousness. You have been set free from sin, Amazing. Have you been set free from sin? If you have not been set free from sin, it is probably because you have not entered yet into the fullness of the death of Jesus Christ. But there may be another reason. And this is going to shock some of you. 
In the seventh chapter, Paul is talking about himself while he was under Jewish law before he became a Christian. I find that it's an apt description of many who live today calling themselves Christians. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So in other words, many today are saying, look, I can't stop sinning. I'm a slave to it. And I know that I'm never going to be victorious over the sin in my life. I just have to put up with it and suffer with it. So I might as well just accept that this is who I am and God's going to have to accept me the way I am. He says, verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So you're always repenting. And then finally, you get to a place where you just, you even stop repenting. You just say, well, I know I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. That's what the preacher told me. So the man who's doing drugs and can't stop, don't worry. You're saved. You receive Jesus. Jesus won't keep you out of heaven because you are on drugs. You're one of his children. Or homosexuality is really not something that God will condemn you for because God is love and we all walk in the love of God and we're all sinners before him and so one sin is no worse than another. But Paul finally says in verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Well, wait a minute. Does the blood of Jesus Christ deal with the sinful nature? And if so, how does he deal with it? Well, we know immediately he deals with it by calling us to die in Jesus. A deep work of repentance, confession, repentance, and putting everything into the hands of Jesus. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And many, many struggle with sexual sin, masturbation, all kinds of, of sexual sin because they say, look, the urge is so strong in my body, I just can't control it. So in other words, they're a slave to sin. It means there has to be a deeper death. But what do I do after I've died? And as a pastor, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I need to be baptized again. One one woman said to me, Pastor, this is my third time I've been baptized. Well, why do you need to be baptized? Because I've sinned against God so grossly. I've denied Jesus as my Savior. I need to start over. Well, why do you need to start over? Because of sin. Well, why is there sin there? 
Well, John the Baptist came, and his purpose was to clean up God's people, to confess their sin, to repent of that sin, and then to turn from it. And that's when Jesus came, and John pointed out to him and to her that this was the Messiah. This was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, not just the sin of the Jewish people. John the Baptist said, This man is the Lamb of God, and he will take away the sin of the world. So Jesus, according to John, is coming after the baptism, after you've been cleansed. He's coming to take away your sin in the future so that you don't walk in it. Well, how's that worked out for you? It's been tough for me. It's been hard. I've had to use a great deal of my time and energy in the prayer closet, in Scripture, talking with brothers and sisters, dealing with anger, disappointment, bitterness, dealing with willfulness on my part, making decisions out of my flesh and not out of Jesus. And after you've struggled doing that, you begin to get a sense in your mind that Jesus is a hard man. That it's, that it's not easy to be a Christian. I listened to a, a preacher, a, a national preacher, just yesterday. And he was saying, we have to turn away from our sin. If you can't, it's okay. You're still saved. You're still part of the family. But we need to turn away from our sin. We'll lose great rewards in heaven if we don't turn away from our sin now. He was saying, how do you, how do you turn away from your sin? And his answer? I'll tell you what his answer was. His answer was, read the scriptures more. Pray more. Go to church every time it's open. Seek the Lord with all of your heart. Is that the answer that Scripture gives us? No, it's not. That is not the answer of Scripture. I remember when I was just a little boy, and I love my dad. He was one of the holiest men I've ever met. He was a good man. He was a gentle man, unless he was angry, and then he wasn't very gentle. But he seldom got angry. I never heard him raise his voice. He was a, a big man, 6'3", huge hands, all muscle, till he got older and got a big belly. <laughs> but my, would, my dad would say to me, Raymond, try harder. Daddy, I tried as hard as I could. Well, try harder. Here, let's sit down. Let's read the scriptures together. Let's pray together. So I'd read the scriptures with him. I love to do that. I'd go to a prayer meeting that night. 
I'd go with him doing Bible studies. But I knew I still wasn't doing what was right. I knew there was still anger in my heart against those that were doing things to me. And my dad would say, Raymond, you've got to forgive them. Okay, I'll forgive them. Till the next time. And then I'm going to beat them up. No, Raymond, that's not how Jesus works. Forgive them. Walk away from that fight. And then I'd get a double message. He'd say, but if you're going to have to fight, make sure you punch him first. Because the first one who punches usually wins the battle. Well, that wasn't very helpful to me. But in this quandary of the seventh chapter of Romans, it's work hard. It's struggle. The man who drinks alcohol, who's a drunkard, try harder. You don't want to stop yet. That's why you haven't stopped. Keep trying. Well, go to AA. They'll help you. And they do. They do an awesome job. But part of what they say is once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And so all the rest of your life, you're going to have to guard carefully your time and place and heart. And you're not going to be able to go with people who drink. You've got to be very careful because you can slip. You can go into the alcohol. You can go into the opiates. You can go into some other kind of of drug or some other kind of obsession. It's hard. And yet we're to be in Christ Jesus. How are we to be in Christ I'm very clear we cannot be in Christ and in sin at the same time. You can't be in Washington, D.C. and New York at the same time. It's impossible. You can't be in sin and be in Jesus at the same time. When you sin, you separate yourself from Jesus. So, does the communion every week Does that cleanse you by the blood of Jesus from all of your sin of that week? I don't think so. That's what a lot of people believe, and that's why they have to go to communion every Sunday, because when they take the cup and they take the bread, they believe that they are forgiven for all of their past week's sins. And so some will even commit sin during the week and say, it's all right because Sunday I'll go to church and I'll take communion the bread and the wine. That's simply one more way to try to avoid entering into the death of Jesus. It's clear that the only possible way to live a righteous life is to enter into the death of Jesus. But how do we stay clean? We'll get let me give you the answer. And it's a, it's a shocking answer to me. It's a stunning answer to me. 
the eighth chapter of the book of Romans we refer to, and I have taught on it many times and referred to it as the normal Christian life. Chapter 7 is the normal life under the law, struggling to try to be good. And you know and I know, you'll never pull it off. That sinful nature has to be destroyed. And there are some of you who believe that the sinful nature can never be destroyed, but that's not what the scripture teaches. So let's go to the eighth chapter. We won't finish it today, but we will come back to it again tomorrow. The eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Therefore, what is the therefore? Therefore is Jesus Christ, in chapter 7, is the one who rescues me. And he rescues me, according to chapter 6, by calling me into his death and his resurrection. But then, that is not enough. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now I have to be in Christ Jesus. Locative. I have to be positionally. Personally, I have to be in Jesus Christ. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free. Set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, you may not have ever seen this before, and I can't tell you how many times I've read this eighth chapter. I've read it hundreds of times. But I see it today. I began to see it clearly this morning in the prayer closet, and I got so excited I had to stand up and jump. I had to I had to leave the room. I had to walk. I had to... Is this true? Is this possible? You see, we've considered, I've considered, the Holy Spirit to be a divine influence to bring conviction in people's lives and in my life. A counselor, a guide. Intellectually and theologically, I've always believed that the Holy Spirit was a real person. I know he is. But I've also held in my heart that the Holy Spirit as a real person comes as a divine influence upon my heart to encourage me to walk in righteousness. What I have not understood adequately is that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost... He did not come just to give power for witness. He also came to give purity, holiness. It's not without note that he is called the Holy Spirit. And when you are baptized or plunged into the Holy Spirit, you are plunged into holiness. And the normal life, as I shared with you in the Peter package yesterday, the normal life of the Christian is to come confessing and repenting of their sin, 
to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to enter into his death by being baptized in water and acknowledging that now your life is hidden in Jesus. But how is your life hidden in Jesus? Because almost immediately in the New Testament, you are to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in holiness, in purity, as well as power. Today in the church, we have pushed the Holy Spirit out, and we only speak usually the majority of the time about Jesus blood on the cross to wipe away our sin and he did that for us but then he went back to heaven and he said i'm going to send you the holy spirit we're afraid of the holy spirit because we've heard about these crazy people that speak in other tongues and they they dance around and they do this and they do that my dad used to tell me tongue speaking people it's of the devil That's how I was raised. Charismatics are of the devil. Pentecostals are of the devil. Now, I know that's not true because I've experienced the Holy Spirit coming in small amount of power. And I found in Scripture, it's not gibberish, it's tongues. It's it's different languages that were spoken at Pentecost. We won't get into the ecstatic languages but these were real languages spoken by the Holy Spirit as a testimony to those who were watching and listening. But now, please understand, the coming of the Holy Spirit was not simply to evangelize the world. The Holy Spirit came, Holy Spirit came, to maintain the cleanliness of the believer. In other words, I've died. I am now brought into Jesus Christ by the baptism in the Holy Spirit. If you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you have not entered into Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is kept outside of your life, and he simply can only come as a counselor to you. He does not want to come primarily as a counselor on the outside. He wants to be inside, and he wants to make a way for Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit to all three reside in your life. Let me show you. The law of the Spirit of life set me free. That's the Holy Spirit. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit, that's Holy Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, have their minds set on what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life. And peace. 
The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Many Christians, many of you listening today are controlled by the sinful mind because you have not ever been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You've been afraid. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. Is that stunning to you? I invited any of you who would like to come and wait with us at the National Prayer Chapel for the coming of the Holy Spirit, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not one of you called me. I'm shocked. Is there no one listening to this radio broadcast who can begin to grab a hold of the fact that the Holy Spirit wants to enter into you fully? Do you not want the Holy Spirit? Do you have another way? Have you been filled and you've walked away from sin and you're now pure in God and the, and the Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit all dwell in you and you are totally given over to Jesus? If so, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to meet you. See, I, I was never taught what I'm teaching you today. This is all new to me. I didn't realize that the only way Jesus Christ could dwell in me was in the Holy Spirit. And the only way the Spirit dwells in me is by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being plunged into that holiness, being plunged into that power. Jesus Christ cannot come and live in you. He is in heaven. The only way he can live in you is by the Holy Spirit. And if you've not given the Holy Spirit that opportunity to come and dwell in you, if you've not taken the time spoken of in the 11th chapter of Luke, where you cry out to the Lord day and night, knocking, seeking, asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and Christ can't live in you. The Holy Spirit can come and he can influence you and he can beseech you to walk in righteousness, but you're going to fail, you're going to fall, you're going to sin against God. The only way to have victory over all sin is to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's the only way. There is no other way found in Scripture by which the misdeeds of the body can be put to death except by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you in holiness. Let me read it for you. This is Romans eight eleven, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. If he lives in you, he had to enter you. He had to baptize you. He had to plunge you into himself. Notice, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. That means you can be a Christian, so-called, but you still walk in sin. And the preacher says, don't worry about it. You're saved. You're part of the family. You're good to go. He's lying to you. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, I want to summarize what I've said to you today. It's stunning. The greatest event in human history was the coming of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And then his life, his atoning sacrifice on that cross, and then his resurrection. These are the greatest events in the history of the world. He died for everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son of a kind. He gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, John 3.17. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save us. How does he save us? By calling us to be crucified with Jesus. And our sins are washed away. We're washed and made clean by the blood. Jesus today is in the tabernacle above the headquarters for the salvation of the human race. He is still applying his blood. What he did at the cross was finished. He finished the atonement. He finished making the provision for us at the cross. But it has to be applied to an individual person's life. And it's applied by confession of sin and repentance and dying to sin, dying to self being washed clean, a miracle of God. We don't do it ourselves. God has to do it for us and in us. And that's what baptism in the water is. We come up out of that baptism in the newness of life. And we're not finished. The second greatest event in the history of the world 
was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of men who had been washed and made clean, the baptism in holiness and in power. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells in us, and the Father comes and dwells in us. We are made clean. We live free from sin. We live in victory because we are in Jesus, and Jesus is in us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I urge you, read carefully this whole eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Then go and read Colossians, Ephesians. Read First and Second Peter. Read Jude. Read the scriptures. And you'll find that it's the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that gives us the victory. We can't gain the victory in our own strength and our own power. We die, we are baptized, we are plunged into holiness, we are plunged into the power of the Holy Spirit, and we now share such incredible intimacy with God. Now, I've had to struggle all my life to walk clean before him. Sometimes I've succeeded in the outward flesh. Yes, I've done that. But in the inward man, it's been a struggle. It's been a battle. Many times in tears and repentance. I need the full plunging into the Holy Spirit of power, of holiness. And so I'm standing on the promises of the 11th chapter of Luke, asking for the fullness of that baptism of of holiness and of power. I encourage you to do the same thing with me. If you live too far to come and share with us at the prayer chapel, please get on your face before God and begin to seek for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it's that baptism that allows Jesus and the Father to come and make their home with us. It's the Holy Spirit who makes that possible. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to put to death the misdeeds of the body to deal with sin. He brings us into a relationship with God the Father where we we begin to call him Abba, the familiar sense, the Daddy. It's oneness with the Father. It's oneness with Jesus. It's oneness with the Holy Spirit because he's the one who makes all of this possible based on the blood of Jesus shed at Calvary. I want this freedom in Jesus. I want this purity. I want this power. 
the world is dying because of human energy. Everybody doing what they can do, but it's not enough. And so our churches are powerless before the wickedness of this nation. We've not stopped the abortion. We've tried. We've marched. I've preached. I've talked about it on the air. I've taken action in my private life to support life, to oppose abortion. We've not been able as a church to turn aside the opiate crisis. We've not been able to turn aside the wickedness of men's hearts. We've not been able to turn aside the violence of our culture. The church in America has utterly failed. Even those who call themselves Pentecostals or Charismatics have focused on the supernatural power and that power so active at the turn of the 20th century among Catherine Kuhlman and many others. They fell because their focus was on the power, not on the holiness. And the charismatic church today has pretty much moved away from holiness. Pentecostals have pretty much moved away from real holiness. They've gone much to legalism. We've got to turn back to Jesus. We've got to die in Jesus. We've got to be born again in Jesus. And then we have to be plunged into the Holy Spirit. Plunged into holiness and plunged into power. If you think I'm missing something, please read John 16, 17, 15, 16, 17. Please read, read carefully. Romans 6, 7, and 8. See what the Holy Spirit will say to you. Well, we're out of time for today's broadcast. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. We at the Prayer Chapel are earnestly actively, seriously, waiting upon God as a congregation for the pouring out of the full power and the full holiness of the Holy Spirit, not the happy spirit. We want Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the one who brings Jesus into our life and keeps him there. I'd love to hear from you would you write to me? Would you help sustain this broadcast if the Holy Spirit is calling you to give? If this is valuable, if this teaching is encouraging to your heart and calls you deeper in Jesus, then would you consider giving to help us support this faith-based ministry? It is all by faith. Write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box, 2346 
Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give online. I invite you to consider doing that. Well, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I come teaching something that probably many have never looked at before. But I'm praying for your revelation to be made clear in their hearts and their minds that there would be such a desire in their heart to reach out to you, Jesus, and such a hunger for your presence that they would cry out for this baptism that you offered of the Holy Spirit and that you would plunge them into the holiness and the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit, that you would overcome them, that you would keep them clean and pure and holy. Lord, thank you for this time we shared. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Again, I'm Ray Greenley. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Thank you for listening. Share it with a friend. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus Christ alone.